It's, it really is an honor to be um, here with you guys um, going through the, the Advent season. Um, we're going to be focusing in on, on Christ through Isaiah. Um, if you guys would turn with me to Isaiah 52, we're going to be going through the section 6 through 15. So that's Isaiah 52, verses 6 through 15. If you're uh, able to stand, uh, please stand with me as uh, we read the Word of God. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has barred, bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from here, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you. And the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand." Lord, we come to you tonight uh, humbly. We read your words. Uh, we seek to understand what you have for us tonight. Uh, we take the time during this season to recognize you as the incarnate king. Come here to redeem us, your people. Lord, thank you for uh, this group of people here eager to hear your word. I pray that you can remove uh, all the incorrect information out of my mouth. I pray that what we hear tonight is only what you will have for us uh, so, Lord, we, we give this time to you to celebrate what you have done for us that we may never forget it. Amen. So Isaiah is a, a major prophet. Um, it's not one you normally turn to in your morning devotions, I would assume. Uh, Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah and many of the other major prophets, they can be a little bit complicated. Um, it's something that we do turn to once in a while. We get little snippets of prophecy to, to learn about Jesus and his time here. There's a lot of very specific prophecy about how Jesus is to come, how Jesus is to, to suffer. Um, it's an amazing book, and I wanted to give um, some context to the book um, as we go into this passage to understand what does this mean for us in the season of Advent. So Isaiah was written around uh, 700 B.C., uh, he was a prophet during the time of four different kings, uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Uh, at the time, Israel was split into a northern and southern kingdom after the death of Solomon. Uh, the north remained uh, what we called Israel, and then the south, they kept Jerusalem as their capital, and they were known as Judah. So Israel and Judah were two separate nations. Uh, the cultural setting and the purpose of Isaiah's ministry is crucial to understanding our text tonight. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time kind of setting this up. So firstly, Isaiah is a, is a prophet. Uh, he speaks divine truth to God's people concerning the many different areas, uh, not only in future predictions, uh, but also in urgently convicting those around him to turn away from their sin. Uh, as for prophecies relating to the future, the easiest way to understand this is to, when we describe it as mountain peaks, the, kind of this, this futuristic look, if you will. So Isaiah is looking across the future, uh, but he's only able to see certain specific peaks of biblical history. He foretells the exile of Israel and Judah, the downfall of their enemies, the return to the promised land, the coming Messiah, uh, and even what we would call the coming of Christ. He, see the, he sees those as kind of mountain peaks. So he, he was given these prophecies with no knowledge of how much time would pass between each peak. So far beyond his time, we can look back with great detail and see how each prophecy came to pass and how long each one uh, 
uh, how, how long each came to, to come to pass. Uh, for him, like I said, if you think of it like mountain peaks, where he's standing on a mountain, just able to see some of these larger events uh, with no knowledge of how much time passes in between them. Uh, Isaiah is, is a really important book because it gives us great confidence in prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Uh, about two-thirds of the prophecy of the Bible has already come to pass in extreme detail down to the finest little detail. Uh, so it should give us great confidence in the prophecies that are yet to come. So when we look at um, what's called kind of the futuristic apocalyptic writings in Revelation, uh, some of the things in Daniel, the stuff that makes us scratch our heads and wonder, is that going on right now? When is that going on? We can be assured of the things that already came uh, and were fulfilled are also going to be fulfilled later. So we can have confidence in that. So Isaiah's purpose was to call God's people back from their sin. Both Judah and Israel at the time were marked by disobedience and infidelity to God. Judah, specifically in the time of Isaiah, would be best described as compromising. Uh, they let false idols in and continued to use the temple uh, to worship God simultaneously, right alongside some of the altars uh, which they had designated as holy. Um, also, they were sacrificing to idols and foreign gods. They allowed for the sin of idolatry to reign over Jerusalem while still keeping this facade of obeying God. Their false spirituality also led to poor political decisions by the kings. You've probably heard in... Uh, uh, the history of, of Israel, there's good kings and bad kings. If you read through Kings and Chronicles, it's uh, kind of an up and down. You see some that really honor God and some that don't. It's this big roller coaster ride. So the leaders, they compromised their reliance on God and his will by aligning themselves with foreign powers, uh, specifically Egypt. Uh, during this time, Assyria was kind of the dominant world power. They were a, a brutal and unstoppable force that were feared by everyone. Uh, Assyria actually captured uh, Israel itself and brought them into captivity uh, much before uh, Judah was led into captivity by Babylon. So I, Isaiah gave promises and instructions that Judah constantly disobeyed uh, because instead of trusting God, they, uh, they trusted in their own political decisions out of fear of, of Assyria. They were, they were afraid pretty much constantly with all their decision-making, how are we gonna stay away from being captured by Assyria? Ironically, it's this arrangement with Egypt is one of the reasons that Judah got conquered. Uh, the lessons and the prophecies given by Isaiah were not heeded. Uh, Isaiah was not a well-liked prophet. There's even some extra biblical texts that hold that Isaiah was sawn in two because of the people's great dislike for him. Um, the things he had to say were not popular, to say the least. Uh, they were not obeyed, uh, and, and Israel and Judah paid for that. So while the kings of uh, Judah spent their resources shoring up against Assyria, it was ultimately Babylon who would wipe Jerusalem off the map and take Judah into captivity, an enemy that they had never even seen or heard of, kind of a new rising power in the world. They instead trusted in their own resources. They trusted in their foreign allies instead of God, and they were uh, actually completely destroyed. Jerusalem was razed to the ground. So instead of relying on God's direction and protection, Judah allied themselves with Egypt. Judah flip-flopped back and forth spiritually from throwing out false idols one generation to literally losing God's law in the temple itself another generation. The temple and its practices were hollow and false. They were no longer sincere. The people and the priests and the kings lived morally compromised lives. And that's actually what I titled this section is Compromise. It's a a theme of Israel throughout this, the time of Isaiah. And I believe it's something that we can clearly see today in our culture. So Isaiah's earnest calls for repentance and warnings against sin are also coupled with the distant light of hope of the coming Messiah. A consistent message comes through, remove the sin, obey God, prepare for the Messiah. Interspersed with the grim pictures of consequence, it is impossible to escape God's message of love for his chosen people. There is a reunion after exile. There is salvation and redemption around the corner for his first love. It is unmistakable to see God's mercy and justice in the poetic rhythms of Isaiah. He has brought his people through so much, and this passage is another reminder of why he won't stop until redemption has run its course. So looking to verse six, therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore on that day, I am the one who is speaking 
quote, here I am. This is a repeated call to remember what God does for his people throughout scripture. Often the, the moment of exodus is called to be remembered throughout scripture. There is no clearer picture of salvation than the Jews leaving slavery by the power of God. At the burning bush, God tells Moses his title. He tells Moses who he is. Basically, God is telling Moses, he says, Moses, they will have no doubt in their minds when you tell them what God has told you. Remember, Moses was worried what the leaders in, uh, in the Egyptian camps would think. I don't know, this Moses guy, he's coming and telling us, you know, whatever, how do we know it's true? And God gives him clear direction and says, no, 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 I'll tell you my name. God's name is important. Who he is and who he says he is is important. This is how we know who to listen to. When Moses told the Israelites about their salvation from Egypt, he did not say, Ra has sent me, or Zeus, or Mars, or Baal. Instead, he tells them that God has told him. This is Exodus 3, 13 through 14. This is that passage. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they will say to me, What is his name? It's a reasonable question. What shall I say to them? 14, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this is what you shall say to the sons of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And then later, God specifies the relationships he wants with his people. This is Exodus 6, 7. Then I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the labors of the Egyptians. So in the midst of a generation that will not stay faithful to their God, he is calling for their attention. He says, remember who brought you out of Egypt. It's me, I'm still here. But he, then he says, on that day. Well, what day? The day of redemption is the day that they're talking about. The day when the exiles are reunited with their God, which has, which has many, many meanings. There was a return from exile, but later we see the imagery of the Messiah as well as we get into verses 13. And some scholars even add that this can look even further forward to what's called the day of the Lord. So when he says in that day, there can be many interpretations of that. What does he mean? Does he mean now in, in exile? Does he mean in that day when Christ comes? Does he mean in that day when Christ comes again to rule forever? Well, this is the mystery of prophecy and the beauty of what we call the harmony of scripture. It is by God's design that the events in time hold many purposes, not only as living metaphors, but fulfillments in themselves. Think back to the story of Passover. It's not only an act of literal salvation of the Israelites, but also a living metaphor for our spiritual salvation by the Passover lamb who is Jesus Christ. It holds two important meanings, literal salvation and a picture of our spiritual salvation later by the Passover lamb. So too is the return of Israel and Judah from captivity, the literal redemption prophesied here, but a living metaphor and an image of the greater redemption of Christ, redeeming mankind in his death and resurrection. And so it will be completed even further when Christ returns and the new Jerusalem is instated and the exiles are returned to Zion once and for all. Redemption has happened many places for the people of God, but ultimately each occurrence has pointed to the great redemption through the blood of Jesus. Verse seven, how delightful on the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news who brings peace, who brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. This is the unique and poetic voice of Isaiah. He actually is credited as being the most literary, literarily diverse author in the Bible. He uses more different words than any other author. He has a very unique voice in the way he says things, but is never lacking uh, in that Holy Spirit uh, inspired word. Here's a metaphor of the night watchman that comes into the picture. One who is up late keeping watch for any news. Even though the news itself is the good part, you can't help but also rejoice in the one who brings it. This night watchman patiently waiting to see redemption approaching. It is their good fortune to be the first to tell of it. Their God has provided, exile is over, your God reigns. See, the exiles could cling to these prophecies while in captivity. 
They were words of hope and gladness in dark times. They became words of instruction for the return of Jerusalem. They rang true as the walls and the gates were rebuilt. See, when the Israelites were in captivity, they were completely separated from their home. The last thing that they saw before being carted off to Babylon was the temple burning. The very first temple, the one that Solomon built, the one that was full of so much splendor, the place where they had literal communion with the, the presence of God, a beautiful, unmatched uh, building, an architecture, uh, a splendor of treasure that was forever lost. When the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, nothing was spared. They took all of the holy vessels, they burned everything to the ground, and that was the last image that these captives got to see before being carted off. They lived uh, in captivity away from their culture, some even forgetting their original language. They couldn't help but be thinking, does God reign? They were looking around at their circumstances, seeing that the world around them had won, that the evil one had vanquished. They were looking back on the golden age of Israel, wondering if it would ever return. But that's what the words of Isaiah came into their hearts and into their minds. So they could cling to that hope. They needed it. Now, we have another greater meaning now for mankind. The church of the new covenant, the church today can be the one bringing good news as the watchman. Luckily, I don't have to really stretch the imagination or wonder if this is a, uh, a good interpretation because Paul actually references Isaiah's very words here uh, in Romans 10, 14 through 15. He says this, how then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him who have they not heard? How are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. To Paul, he's a highly educated and learned man in the scriptures, this connection was immediately clear. Those who have seen salvation now share it. And how wonderful a job it is. Because how else will the exiles return from the darkness to announce the good news, the peace, the salvation provided by the coming Messiah? As we listened to uh, O Holy Night during worship, I couldn't but help but think of another set of watchmen, people who were keeping watch in the night in a pasture. There were shepherds out taking watch of their sheep. They were watchmen over their, their flock. And they saw the first good news from the angels. Here they are. Whoa, don't be afraid. You know, you're standing in a field. All of a sudden, all these angels, these hosts of angels come about singing about the Messiah being near. They were the first watchmen to hear the good news, to see God's plan unfolding. And I'm sure they ran to tell their friends and family, and they did. They began to uh, be excited about what God had. So verse 8 Listen, your watchmen, raise their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Listen, Isaiah asks. Listen to the good news provided by the watchmen, the ones who patiently and faithfully watch through the night for their salvation. The watchmen see and hear news before anyone else. They see the Lord restore Zion right in front of them, and they shout joyfully about it. When they see, they proclaim, they shout, they yell, they do so with joy. The watchmen are the witnesses to the Lord's victory. They announce their victory to the people. They were the kind of the first people on the scene. So remember the spies that entered into Canaan. They saw the prosperity and the opportunity that God had given them, but they were too afraid to enter. They were afraid of the enemies that lived there, but one of the spies spoke up. He was a watchman of God's victory. His name was Caleb. He trusted in God's promises and he could see the victory before the others could. He said this in Numbers 13.30. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it for we will certainly prevail over it. What the other people of Israel saw was the giants that lived in the land, the people already living there that had armaments and walls and fortifications uh, and they said, no way, we can't do that. We just wandered out of a desert. We have nothing, no training, nothing. But Caleb knew that the Lord had given them the promised land. He knew and he trusted in what God had to say. 
And God told them, this is the promised land that I've given you. Go in and enjoy it. He believed them. And then later, when the people of Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, in miraculous fashion, they all became watchmen of an amazing miracle. God instructed them to build a memorial of that moment. This is Joshua 4, 21 through 24, is that account real quick. And he said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask of their fathers in time, come saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done in the Red Sea, which had dried up before us when we had crossed. So all the peoples of the earth may know what the hand of the Lord is, is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. When they got to the Jordan, they were instructed to cross over. The priests stood in, they stepped in with one foot with the Ark of the Covenant. You don't want to be that first guy. He stepped in, dry land, they crossed. It's an amazing miracle. And God instructs them, take stones from the river and build an altar here in remembrance. And that's that account right there. See, the ones who witnessed the miracle were to share the account and recount the amazing works of God to those who were not present. That's the job of the watchman. We read four firsthand accounts of the work of Christ. They were written by watchmen, those who saw with their own eyes the restoration of Zion. And with joy, they lifted their voices for us to hear. It's the watchman's job to pass on the news of what they witness, to pass on that information to others. And the news is good. Its contents are very joyful. You know, the word evangelist actually has the word angel in it. And uh, in Greek, it comes from the same word. It's one who gives out news, one who gives out good news. And Paul exhorts Timothy and he says, do the work of an evangelist. The angels in that Bethlehem field, they were evangelizing. They were giving the good news of the gospel. That's a clear picture of what our job is. According to Paul, what we need to do it's to be a watchman, to pass on that news. You hear and you see the good news for yourself of what Christ has done in your life, and then you pass it on to someone who doesn't know. That's exactly what a watchman does. And now Isaiah prescribes the response to the good news. Here's what they are to do. This is verse nine. Be cheerful, shout joyfully together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. So this is our response in hearing what the watchmen bring us, to be cheerful, to rejoice. The last line is key. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Redemption is actually, in Jewish culture, is a familial act. To the Jews, redemption comes from Levitical law. It is the act of buying back what was lost, and it's buying back by a family member as in lost property or family possessions. If you remember the book of Ruth, it's the story of a family redeemer, Boaz, marrying Ruth to redeem what would have been lost. Redemption would call to mind for the generation of Israelites being redeemed from Egyptian slavery by what the Israelites called the 10 miracles, or the Egyptians called it the 10 plagues. Redemption is the purchase of what is lost. It's reclaiming of that which had been sold to the enemy. Earlier, if we go back a couple of verses in Isaiah 52, 3, this is what the Lord says. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing and you will be redeemed without money. Redemption is a clear picture of payment for release, paying the ransom, purchasing what is lost. See, this is the reason to be cheerful, to shout joyfully together. Because as the exiles wasted away in captivity far from home, generations would pass before true redemption would come. The generations lost to Babylon would cling to these words, ready to go to their ancestors' home, to a Jerusalem that some had never even seen. These were the words, these were the only words of hope they had. They would cling to the stories of redemption passed down by watchmen and continue to pass them on, awaiting their return to Jerusalem, to be cheerful, to return. So verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all nations so that the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. See, this is the reason for hope. 
This is what God's people have waited for, the full might of God's strength laid out on the enemy for his sake. That is what it means to bear his holy arm or to, to, to unleash some full might. See, for the captives, this was retribution, a holy payback for the suffering of their exile, a salvation from captivity and conquest of all earthly enemies. This is what they were thinking. When the captives returned to Jerusalem and rebuilt, they were still waiting for this moment. It was not earthly powers that would be crushed. It was not the status of Israel as a political power that would be redeemed because the power of God would be bared against the powers of death and sin. All the earth would know the name of Jesus, the Son of God, the incarnate deity. The salvation from sin would be the greatest conquest that had ever happened. Greater than any physical battle or power, but a king and a kingdom would, and a king and a kingdom who would never be toppled. This conquest was to be announced to every corner of the world. For those who witnessed it would be like watchmen and deliver the news that God reigns supreme. This coming victory required its participants to be prepared. God calls his people to holiness, to be set apart as a picture of his holy nature. The actual separation between the clean and the unclean is important, and he emphasizes it here. Remember that the people of Judah, the reason that they had to go into exile was because of their disobedience, was because of the compromise of the lives that they had lived. They would literally go to the temple to participate in what they had been commanded to participate in for holiness, holding on to their idol, holding it in their pocket, getting ready to worship the idol later, maybe worshiping the idol at the same time. They were combining things that should not be combined, the sacred and the profane. They were not being holy as God had called them to be holy. And he reminded them, and he reminded them, and he reminded them, and he reminded them, and they stuck their fingers in their ears, and they're la, 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 I don't care. I don't want to listen. I don't want to listen. And they went back and forth and back and forth. And they obeyed, and they disobeyed, and they obeyed, and they disobeyed. And uh, if this sounds familiar to anybody, you know, we're not trying to point any names or, you know, name any names, point any fingers, but the history of Israel is the history of sinful man. If you see any resemblance to modern culture in the history of the Jews, it's because man has not changed. Sinful man needs a holy God to cleanse them from their sin. We constantly uh, <laughs> go back and forth. We constantly keep our idols in our pockets as we walk into church. I got an idol up here. <laughs> it's easy to, to look back and go, oh, those Israelites, those foolish, foolish Israelites. They didn't have the rest of the book. That's what their problem was. But they did. They did have the full picture. They did have the hope. You see, God has revealed his nature and his method of salvation since the beginning. If you go to Genesis 3, you can see there is a prophecy there given in saying that the downfall of sin is not going to come from the actions of you or I, but it's gonna come from someone who God promised to send to do it in our place. So 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Do not touch what is unclean. Go out the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. For the exiles leaving Babylon, they were told to take, to leave and take none of the old life with them. Do not bring the pagan rituals. Do not bring the foreign activities. Do not keep living as a captive. Leave Babylon behind and purify yourself from sin. The reason that Judah had been captured in the first place was for their sin. Now that God had redeemed them from their captivity, they needed to leave it all behind. Babylon was a place full of idols, pagan worship, lives and activities that profane God's name. But now the people were lifted out of that life and back in right standing with God, but they must leave any of the old life behind in Babylon. That's really important. See, Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 quotes this exact section in referring to the moving from sin to salvation. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 1, he says this, Therefore, having these promises... Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all the defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Like I said, I don't have to do too much work. The New Testament, really, uh, I, I kind of lean on that for translation here. It's about removing Babylon from your life. 
We all come from Babylon. Some of us were born in Babylon. Some of us were born really near Babylon. (laughs) We all come from Babylon. That's the life that we had before we had Christ. Some of us might still be in Babylon. Some of us didn't even know that being in Babylon was a bad thing. And as fun as it is, it doesn't lead to where God wants you to live. And that's what Paul wants for us as well, to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. For Paul, this prophecy clearly applied to the new man or woman in Christ as well. It's not hard to see the metaphor. We all used to live in Babylon, and if we've been redeemed, we are called to remove Babylon from our lives. The old habits, the old man, the old wineskin that is not fit for new wine. See, this is an important instruction from God. It's repeated in many different ways. But here, it's said to be free from Babylon and its influences, to cleanse yourself. This is a weak point for Israel, and by extension, humans. See, we're too easily influenced by the culture and the attitudes around us. We tend to use those around us as a point of comparison to justify our behavior. As long as I'm better than that guy, or I'm not as bad as she is, I'm okay. That's comparison. See, but God doesn't use comparison. His standards are perfect. They're objective standards. They're not subjective standards. We tend to use this justification often, just like Israel did. Well, we're not as bad as Assyria. Let me tell you about them. So obedience is removing all the influence of Babylon from my life, the influence of sin. Some of the words and phrases that we read in scripture about sin, the defilement of flesh and spirit, we tend to water down. We go, I'm just, you know, I'm a broken person. I need some help. Scripture lays out very clearly what sin is. It's a complete separation from me and God. And in Romans, it says that the wages of sin is death. There's a stark consequence for sin. And there's consequence for keeping sin in our lives as well. So it's removing the cultures, the attitudes, the practices, and the idols that belong to the world, and instead practicing holiness. Practice makes permanent, right? Let me go to Psalms 37, 23, and 24 real quick. This is an encouraging passage. I was reading it in my uh, devotion today. This is Psalms 37, 23, and 24. I was encouraged by this. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. So again, in the midst of this consequence and stark reality of sin, we gotta remember about the hope because that's what the psalmist is saying here. He says in 23, it's the one who delights in the Lord's way that his steps are established And though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong. It's not over for him when he falls. It's an encouragement that we can hold by. Then Isaiah continues explaining the way in which this happens. This is verse 12. But you shall not go out in a hurry, nor shall you go as fugitives. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. See, again, this is hearkening back to the Exodus from Egypt. When Moses led the people to the Red Sea, Pharaoh changed his mind and chased him with an army. There was a sense of urgency in flight, as there should be in the Exodus from Egypt. While redemption had taken place, there was a hurried escape that the people had endured. So this is a reminder of such a time, but also a differentiation. This redemption is a victory march. They are not leaving in the dead of night, They're not afraid to be caught and returned. They're not running for safety before they can be brought back into captivity. But what stays the same as when they left Egypt is God's presence. See, before his people, it says, that means vigilant and watchful, directing their path, bringing them to a place of his design. And it says, I will be their rear guard, just like in the time of Pharaoh, when God's presence came like a wall of fire behind them, keeping Israel safe from Pharaoh's army. God's promise to keep us safe 
God has promised to keep safe what is his, excuse me. To be the rear guard is also to protect the weak, the vulnerable, the ones who cannot travel as quickly. It's to ensure security. We can be assured of his promises and his directions and the ability to reach his desired location. Just like we talked about in Psalms, it's the Lord directing the steps of the righteous. It's in his direction. You notice that it's God going before and God going behind. He's directing this train. It's going in his direction. I don't have to stand in the front and wonder, oh boy, I, you know, I don't know where I'm going, but I hope this is right. I have someone to follow. We have the shepherd, right, to lead the sheep. And he's also behind. You guys ever seen, you know, National Geographic, the zebras? Here we have a herd of zebras traveling through the safari. And you see the lion coming back, the lioness. And you know who she goes for? Is it that really strong buff-looking zebra at the front, or is it the one with like the three legs in the back? They go for the back. They go in for the back. It's unprotected. It's weak. It's vulnerable. But God has promised to keep the front and the back. If you're a three-legged zebra, you're safe, okay? So we can be assured of his promises. This is what Philippians 1.6 says. For I am confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work among you will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus. And this is what Psalm 23.1 is. This is, a, this is a famous, famous psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The rest of that psalm is, is beautiful and comforting, but we get the picture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And Paul is, is confident that he who began a good work will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Have you ever started a project you couldn't finish? Yeah, I have one of those in my garage right now. <laughs> I'm not confident that I'm going to finish it. I'm glad that's not how Jesus is. He's confident in Christ. We should be confident in that, in that work among us. So there are more promises of God's faithfulness than we have time to recount here, but they are worth recounting. And it's by forgetting God's faithfulness that Judah and Israel fell into sin and disobedience, and then exile. There is a reason that God often repeats himself. You often see verse after verse after verse, God saying the same thing to people over and over and over again, and we're rolling our eyes going, yeah, we get it. Well, we don't. That's why he has to repeat himself. See, the history of the Jews, like I said, is the history of human nature. We must recount God's faithfulness. We must go back to these passages of his hope. We must see these fulfilled prophecies and understand what he has done for us or else we forget. We so, so easily forget. Then our narrative takes a sudden turn. Here we go to verse 13. Uh, it's, it's though as we've segregated into a next chapter a very strange depiction is made, one of a servant's given honor and stature by God, one who would suffer in the place of those who had deserved suffering, one who would be the power of God or the arm of God, one who would intercede for sinners, one we know as Messiah. We've transitioned to verse 13. And it says this, behold, it's always a great transition word right there, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up, and greatly exalted. It's almost like a 90 degree turn here. Where, where are we going? See, here we're introduced to this character known as the servant. But in this first verse, it says his status is great. He is worthy and deserving of exaltation. It's kind of odd seeing a servant, but one who is worthy of deserving exaltation. But if we looked at Matthew 26, 64, we can see how Jesus fits this description. This is 26, 64 of Matthew. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Sitting at the right hand of power is another way to convey his status as a, a powerful extension of God's power. That's it's kind of what that means, right? So that's who Jesus is. This is why we can look to these very specific prophecies and understand what they mean and how they apply to Jesus as the Messiah and how we can have confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. See, the servant has a claim to high status. He will be exalted. But this also looks forward to the time of Christ's second coming. 
It says, my servant will prosper. His mission will be accomplished. And this is another part of the mission, that it will be successful. (laughs) Praise God that it was. See, on the cross, he said, it is finished. Or he said, it is accomplished. He will be greatly prosperous. He will be high and lifted up, greatly exalted, excuse me. And my servant will prosper or succeed. My servant will succeed. So we have two pictures. It can be the status of Jesus. It can be the status of his deity. It can also uh, look to Jesus' second coming when he will reign, when he will be king, when he will uh, reign in more of a a political conquest. Um, But it also looks to Uh, the worthiness of Jesus, the deity of Jesus and who he is. And he will prosper. He will accomplish his task. So then we go to verse 14. Just as many were appalled at you, my people, so his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So while his status is important, his appearance is, is representative of God's people. His form and his physical appearance have meaning. See, we know looking back, this will be on the cross. We know now that the disfigurement and the marred appearance is from torture and pain. The damage and the punishment that the Messiah endured is for his people. This is the intercession that is happening. It says, just as many were appalled at you, my people. See, this is the meaning of the living metaphor that the servant's pain will be connected to the pain of his people. This will be an empathetic suffering. See, the servant wishes to know the pain of his people and live it out. Uh, Isaiah 53 has a lot of specific descriptions, and these are ones that are going to be very familiar. So Isaiah 53, verse 5, says this, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that had brought us peace. And with his stripes, we were healed. 53.11 says this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is important. There's one part of it that is Representatory. It's empathetic. It's saying, you have suffered. You have suffered, my people, and I'm going to suffer. I'm going to take on the suffering that you have. But it goes beyond that. It's more than I've been in your shoes, you know, tough it up, it's going to be okay. It goes beyond that into suffering on the behalf of. He's taking on sin and the punishment of sin. This is a picture of the cross, right? is that when we look at all these very specific passages of of his stripes, of when he was given the lashes, of the marring of his physique, we know come from the torment and the time spent up on the cross. Uh, The the crucifixion is such a, a deadly and horrible torture because you die of asphyxiation. You are held up in such a way that you will drown uh, in lung fluid, basically. You die in a way that's very painful and humiliation. I was just reading um, this uh, historical book about um, kind of how the the Bible changed the world's culture. Uh, And the, the author had mentioned that the four gospels are the most detailed account of crucifixion because no one ever kept an account of who was crucified. It was a humiliating act. It was something that was so low that no one dared to even remember the names of the people who were crucified. It was for, for common thieves and people who were to not be remembered, buried in you know, graves that were unmarked. The Bible's accounts of Jesus suffering on the cross is the most detailed account we have of anyone being crucified. No one can remember anybody's name. Oh, it wasn't that one, I don't know. I think he you know, stole some apples or something. It's such a, uh, a low position for someone to be in to be crucified by the Romans. Now, our world is completely changed by it, we know. That cross means something different. People wear it around their necks. That would be bizarre if you walked around and you saw someone wearing like a guillotine. You would think, that's weird. Why are you doing that? That's really kind of gross. It's an implement of death and torture, but it flipped the world upside down. It changed the world's wisdom and said, I'm going to take what was meant for death 
and dishonor and turn it into the place where you go for salvation. It's an amazing turning on the head, right? Verse 15. So he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. This is a fascinating line, the sprinkle. This is literally just as a priest would sprinkle blood in the offering of cleansing for sins, so this servant will sprinkle the nations in priestly cleansing. I want you guys to turn back to Leviticus, Leviticus 16, 19. It might be a book of the Bible you've literally never turned to. <laughs> 16, 19. This is a description. This is another picture of what we're talking about here. Again, a living metaphor lived out and fulfilled and then again by Jesus. This is 1619. This is kind of instruction and training. You heard of the Levitical law, right? And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it, meaning the mercy seat or the, the altar, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanliness or the sin of the people of Israel. This was a cleansing that they were instructed to do for the sin of the nation. And it says here, so he will sprinkle many nations. This is interesting. The first time for this priest here in Leviticus is the sprinkling of the blood, cleansing the nation of Israel. But here we have a change. It is sprinkling on many nations, which is really good news for you if you're not Jewish. So it's literally that priestly duty being fulfilled. And it's also a possible end times reference later when it talks about the ears and the eyes. This is a possible end times reference of all eyes and ears knowing Christ when he returns, right? Whether you knew about him beforehand or not, when he comes, you will know. Every knee will bow, right? And that doesn't mean in a good way. So the servant's role in fulfillment is key to the earlier passages. It's not just a kind of a random left turn, but it's important to understanding the earlier passages. See, what is promised is redemption, the return of Zion in some way, and the bearing of God's strength. That's what's being promised. So here in the second half is the mode of fulfillment, the path of redemption comes in a highly exalted, priestly, suffering, and interceding servant. This is the Messiah. So the good news to be celebrated, the promised seed highly anticipated, the final redemption of Israel and for the world. And while the final conquest over earthly powers is yet to come, that one day the kingdom of heaven will be the final political power, as it so to, so to speak. See, the Messiah came to defeat the trickiest of all enemies, that is sin and death. And the message that Israel has been given is one of hope and preparation, that we must leave Babylon or Egypt or Corona, that our lives must reflect that change that the idols of sin from our old lives must be left behind, that we are bought and we are paid for. But instead, we walk in victory. We walk with what God has promised land ahead and his faithful protection behind us. As a last verse, I wanna go to Galatians. This is Galatians 3, 28 and 29. Uh, I was listening to a sermon and uh, this was brought up and I, I thought it was a very apt ending. This is Galatians 3, 28 and 29. This is also a familiar passage. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, the promise that was given to Israel is not just for the Israelites. He's going to sprinkle many nations, and he did. See, we are now a part of the promise of the Messiah. What happened way back in the garden, the promise of one who would come and defeat sin, is for all of mankind. 
That's what the Advent season is. It's a celebration of that time. It's a, it's a time full of anticipation that when Christ finally came, it's for the redemption of everyone. That all these specific events in history happen and leading up in prophecy, that when Christ came on that night, it was a time that changed the world. See, Jesus came to fulfill redemption. He is the kinsman redeemer. He is the, what's called the root and the branch of David, the beginning and the end of that line. But he's bringing us into it as well. If you are not directly related to Abraham or if you don't remember if you are, it might be a long way to count back, there is still redemption for us. We are still part of this family and part of this promise. God's plan for redemption happened on that implement of torture that we talked about. God's plan for redemption was not what the people thought it was going to be. They expected a political return, a conquest over their physical enemies around them. And a lot were disappointed that after Jesus came and ascended and left, Rome was still there around them, oppressing them. They still had hardship. They still had physical needs and wants even after knowing Jesus. See, what he has promised in redemption is so much greater than our physical well-being here and now and the enemies around us. You can look to Psalms to see the lament of someone with so many enemies around them. See, what, what Jesus did in redeeming us is he purchased us with his blood from our sin. So if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't know him as your personal Lord and Savior, if you only know of him uh, as a name, this is the time of salvation. It's being offered to you. So as we close in prayer, uh, be looking to your Redeemer. And if you don't have him as your Redeemer, as your Savior, you can pray with me now. Lord, we know we are sinners. We know that we have fallen so short, just as scripture says that all have sinned and all has fallen short. But Lord, you have provided Christ. You provided the Messiah as the way out. So Lord, knowing that we have fallen short of your standard, that we cannot be perfect, we pray to you asking for your forgiveness, that you would live in our lives as Lord and Savior, that we can look to you as our Redeemer, and then we can live like you are a Redeemer, that we leave behind the old ways, the things that have been keeping us from you, that we cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness. Lord, we pray for your healing over our nation, over our community, as we are so split up, as we are so compromised right now. Lord, we look to the Israelites as an example. We look to them as a living metaphor, fulfilling so many things. Lord, we pray that we are not a compromising people. I pray that we can be holy and set apart for your name's sake, that we know that we can leave Babylon behind, that we can leave our old lives behind and live in you. Amen.